Welcome to The Organisational Inclusionist. I'm your host, Grace Masuro. In this podcast series, we'll be delving deep into the pressing issues surrounding equality, diversity and inclusion in both the workplace and the broader world. My goal is to foster understanding, inspire change and amplify the voices of those advocating for a more inclusive and equitable society. Throughout this series, I'll be engaging in candid discussions with leaders, experts, activists and changemakers from various fields. We'll explore the challenges, successes and evolving landscapes of equality, diversity and inclusion. From dismantling systematic biases to promoting equal opportunities for all, we'll touch on a broad range of topics. But we won't stop at discussing problems, we'll actively seek out solutions and actionable steps to drive positive change. Our aim is to inspire and empower you, our listeners, to take an active role in making the world a better place for everyone. This is The Organisational Inclusionist. Let's get started. On this episode of The Organisational Inclusionist, we're discussing how we navigate diversity and inclusion in recruitment. Today, I'm joined by David Sayers, who is Board Director and MD at Compass Executives. David, it's so great to have you today. We obviously go way back to our Michael Page recruitment days. However, it's (laughs) been 13 years since we worked together, maybe slightly more. (laughs) So it'd be great to hear what you've been doing since and a bit more about the work that you do now. See you again, Grace, and thanks very much for inviting me to do this. It's uh, it's always a pleasure and great to see you again. You're you're looking much better in that 13 years than I have, so we'll (laughs) we'll, we'll move swiftly on. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think think that when I, you and I worked together, which is now back actually a little bit further, 2007, 2008, I think it'd be fair to say that many, many things, we talk about diversity and we talk about sort of some of the mental health agenda that we both we were both been speaking about earlier on were things that nobody really talked about. So I mean I think that you know we've come on leaps and bounds from there, but there's still a hell of a lot more work to be done as, as we'll probably get into as we start to talk. But now I've been in recruitment for 28 years. Um, I've been in executive search for crikey 20 of those years probably, and and it's probably worth saying that executive search sometimes by its very nature can be. The least diverse of recruitment processes, specifically because clients put on such really strong strictures about who they want us to go and search for in certain mm. markets, certain geographies, certain industries. That ultimately means that defines the pool before we start. So some of our job is to is some of that education piece. But anyway, that's a little bit about me. That's what I've been doing. And that's I'm looking forward to getting into the questions you've got armed for me. Amazing. <clears throat> Thank you. And I I agree around the executive search piece. I think it is so tricky. And that's definitely something I'm really passionate about is how do we change the way executive teams look and feel in organisations? It's brilliant to hear that that's something that you're looking at as well. What does diversity and inclusion mean in the context of recruitment? And why is it important for organisations to prioritise it? Yeah, that's a a good opening question, isn't it? I've been very lucky that in the last few years of my career I've worked with some very talented people in this space and you you kind of learn as you go on so I want to put a big caveat across this this is my understanding this is my lived and learned experience to this it is not the definitive guide there Mm. are many people out there that have got many many more years experience than I have but what I, what I mean about it is, is that recruitment in any process in any walk of life should be without bias should be fair open and transparent and at the very at the very basic minimum one should expect that if you're engaged in a recruitment process you're expecting your agent and your client to abide by those very simple core principles really 
as for the importance of the organization to prioritize it, certain organizations, I dare say, don't view it as an importance. And that's our struggle, isn't it? Others yeah. put it front and center of their agenda. I mean, I think if you look at the world that we operate in, so we specifically, most of our clients are private equity based, the word, the, the combination of ESG is being thrown around the space at the moment. But some of that is the social element of that is around more inclusive workforces. I, you know, I work in a very inclusive organization. It's more fun, it's more open, it's, it can be challenging on occasions, but it's a better place to work. So, you know, if you're going to, for organisations to prioritise it, it's more around understanding what the features and benefits of it are. You know, a happier workforce, a more inclusive workforce means that they stay longer, they do more, they're more empowered to do more for their business. And guess what? You know, the business and the individuals both benefit. It's a dual harmony in that. So uh, as, as for priority, you know, as I said earlier on, that's the journey we're on. Some organisations mm. put that in a higher sense of priority. And some of it is about selecting a recruitment partner at whatever level there's that high, that have a level of expertise in that and can guide the clients through that process. I think I meet with a number of individuals that are very well-meaning but really don't have any kind of um, strong ideas about how they might deliver against some of those challenges. No, absolutely. What are some common barriers or challenges that organisations face when trying to create that diverse and inclusive recruitment process? Yeah, I mean, I think I just touched on it a short while ago there, Grace, education. You'll know from the from the great work that you do is that actually I don't believe anybody starts a recruitment process to try and make it, you know, non-diverse and as hugely biased as possible. Nobody does that. Um, I'd <laughs> like to think nobody not, does anyway. that. Yeah, I'd like to think not. Yeah, let's assume that that's the case. Um what are the barriers? The barriers are education. Some of it is just actually you just need to educate people better. And, I, you know, I've been in, again, I've been sitting in a room listening to people talking about conscious and unconscious bias. I've been talking to people about talk about white privilege and, you know, all those kind of things, which were complete new terminology to me. Mm. I think there's a fear factor in it, if I'm going to be really honest. I've met a lot of clients that are worried about using the wrong terminology or the wrong statement and they think that it's something that they're, they're generally fearful of so I think mm. education can play a significant part in minimizing that but actually the process that's the easy bit that's the bit we as experts in this field can control and some of that again is just explaining okay well look, let me try and understand what you want to try and achieve by this so quite often we'll get a mandate we'll, and an organization will come to us saying you know this is what we'd like you to hire but ideally, we'd love to see more females or we'd like to see people of more of, of black African heritage or, you know, we'd like to encourage people from you know various kind of subsets. And we just mm. say, look, it's all possible, but you have to understand the world that you're going to push out into. And some of that is about messaging. Some mm. of that is about attracting the right people. And some of that is also the education of the organization to understand how they take people and support people through a process. Yeah. So, I'll give you a for example, we'll get into this later on, but I was talking to a client a short while ago and they said, you know, we've done three or four assignments recently, David, and we don't seem to be attracted to depth of female leadership. There's an article in LinkedIn this morning talked about still, if you look at the FTSE 100 and CFO leads, and I specialised in finance recruitment, so I'll talk about finance because it's the bit I know the most. The number I saw this morning, that 86% of the of finance leadership in the UK is still male. Wow. I will personally say that that is not a shortage of female applicants. That is that is a process where some of the businesses don't know where to go looking and they don't have the support mechanisms or the understanding and how you create a relationship to take a candidate from initial interest all the way through the process. Now, the big stereotype that I use a lot of the time 
Um, and I and I speak as being a bit an, a, as an alpha male in this, so I, I can immediately say that. But if a if a if a man generally looks at a job spec, their first reaction is I can do it, and they engage upon a process where they prove they can, even if they can't. Yeah. A female typically will often look at a, an, an element of a job spec or requirement and say, I've not had exposure to that. I can't see why I'd be interested, and I'll equally choose maybe not to apply or need a little bit of nurture. Now, if you work with the right recruitment partner they will nurture that relationship they will tease out the skills and they will level they will try and find the support and how you support a candidate through a process if you don't do that that is a fundamental factor as to why senior exec females typically tend to drop out the process or disengage early on in the process because they 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 make a judgment call based on their suitability yeah absolutely a problem I've never seen a male do (laughs) (laughs) and the thing is I've heard that so so often and I've obviously done that many times in my career as well is if I look at a job spec and you know I don't feel like I can do half of that then I won't apply for it whereas I know you know male friends and associates can think completely differently so it is again Mm. really good to hear your perspective on that one of the other barriers that I was speaking to someone last week about this and and they mentioned that what they do is look at the who traditionally does the interviews in organizations and what you traditionally find is that those that do you know the most interviews are traditionally white older white males and it's again how do you change the impression that people get of an organization if they're, they're being interviewed by the same people who potentially have the same views or expectations in terms of, you know, this is who I'm used to working with and you're, you don't really fit that. So maybe this won't work. So, yeah, no, thank you for that, David. Sorry, just to pick up on that point. Also, we have to be cognizant of the fact that as recruitment professionals, we interview hundreds of people during the course of the year. If you pick a senior exec in a business, they might only do four or five talent interviews during the course of the year. Mm -hmm. So some of this is just actually being match fit to do the interview. Now, it's a very brave guy that says to a chief exec with a new client, how good are you interviewing, Mr. Client? (laughs) But nevertheless... It can be a factor. I've had some feedback, some very challenging feedback. But, you know, they've read through a list of questions and at the end lifted their head above and says, anything you want to ask me? So, you know, there's 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 skills as well. And, you know, we know what it's like. First impressions last for a very long time, don't they? Absolutely. Could you share some examples of innovation <clears throat> that you've seen in companies that have successfully fostered diversity and inclusion in their recruitment efforts? The best innovative approach and it doesn't sound like a big issue a big thing but it is is the, the organization that thinks pre during and post the interview process mm-hmm. so the organization that thinks about the level of support needed for that individual and that sponsorship needed for that individual to be the best version of themselves after accepting the job and gets that front and center of the interview process yeah that doesn't sound like innovation but it's amazing how few organizations seemingly can demonstrate that even to the extent of who does the interviews, which gets back to your earlier point. The, the executive search business is a very mature business and, you know, innovation. And now the thing is about AI at the moment. And I'll touch on that because I think that's a massive risk to some of the areas that we've covered off earlier on yeah. in terms of how if we're going to allow a machine to start selecting people. Guess what will happen? Um, exactly. You'll see less diversity, certainly not more. It's quite difficult to innovate a very mature organisation. The innovation comes, again, from education and using partners that can point to a track record of success and how they help their clients achieve their levels of success. So that's not really edu- innovation, it's more education. But the innovative companies are ones that have thought about 
how they look to the external market. They don't try and cover it up, but they're mm -hmm. open and honest. And the word a colleague of mine used to use all the time is authenticity. And I think that's a word I use a lot. If you're very authentic, you can afford to have some gaps and say, look, I'm being very open and honest. We haven't got to where we want to on this journey. You are going to help us play a significant part of that. And this is how we're going to do it, rather than it's a tokenistic high because, you know, people run away quite rightly from those very early. This isn't just a question of have job, fill job, move on. This is about if this is a journey, how does this component fit that journey? And what does the wider aspects of that and try and get some kind of messaging out? So the innovation often starts with just presenting themselves in the best light. Definitely. I think that piece that you mentioned as well around what happens post interview. So who's staying in touch with that candidate? How are you preparing them for their first day, etc.? Because sometimes people can, you know, depending on notice period, particularly at the exec level, you could be looking at up to six months for yeah. someone to start. How are you maintaining that relationship, particularly if they're from a diverse background? Because they're going to really want to feel like they belong in your organization before they even start. So keeping that relationship is so powerful. So no, I completely agree around innovation. I think, it, I think that's powerful. I mean, at, at some point, I'm sure you're going to ask me about a case study. So I, at the risk of ruining the case study, but there, a, a piece of innovation, I think, to your point around how you maintain relationship. We did a, a very significant piece of work that involved a relocation from the UK into, into Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. the brilliance of which the company took that individual by making sure that his wife and his children felt included in that relocation process got very early in the front foot around location schooling infrastructure you know all those kind of things and all of a sudden the wife went from following her husband to yeah. feeling part of that journey and felt that her needs for the family and everything else were being looked at way early into the process but well, just smart it was just Absolutely. you know smart but I don't so many people assume that it's about making sure that Fred or Sally gets paid the appropriate amount of money and they move and forget about all the kind of component parts, the softer yeah. kind of issues, which often are the bits that makes the deal fall over, in my experience. Definitely. And and I've actually never heard of an organisation doing that. So that does sound really innovative. And for anyone listening that's thinking, that was a great idea, you should definitely steal that. Um, <laughs> How can unconscious bias impact the recruitment process and what steps can organisations take to mitigate that? Another really good question. You know what? I'm going to be very, I'm going to be open and honest. I am sure there have been times when I have engaged in unconscious bias without really knowing it, hence the unconscious piece. Yeah. The best example I can give of this is the classic CV comes in, read it through, realises that the individual went to the same school, grew up in the same area, played rugby, has a similar sporting group, likes mm. the same music, whatever it might be. And the first 10 minutes of the conversation is around that particular aspect, yeah. where they went to school. Oh, did you see that match? Oh, I noticed that's your favourite restaurant. I know, you know, they think it's ice breaking, but actually what they're fundamentally doing is they're already pre-selecting this individual as being a good person. Yeah. You know, we, I, my, my father many years ago, I mean, I'm 58 now for context, but when I first started looking for a job in when, nearly 40 years ago, there was this thing called the old school tie, whereby, you know, people from the same university would recruit the same people from the same university. It's safe, yeah. but there's unconscious bias. I mean, it, it's the unconscious bit is the bit you unpick and there's a very good friend of mine, Cordelia, does an amazing coaching piece around unconscious bias. And some of the things you would just generally think are kind of ice-breaking questions, nice, get people to know are actually exactly what that is. And it's mm. psychological. What you're actually saying is this person feels they're part of my group. I'm comfortable yeah. with them. And therefore, I might not ask them such challenging questions as somebody who I don't consider to be. 
So, you know, what can they do to mitigate it? It's training. A lot of this will come back to training and education. It's a lot of this will come back that people are relatively inexperienced about interviewing. And as much as the candidate wants to give a good impression, so does the interviewer as well. And actually what typically tends to happen is that, you know, they will, you know, they will start thinking this is a great idea. Well, why don't we talk about golf for the first 15, 20 minutes? And then the interview clock wears down and the, and the really killer questions don't get asked. It happens. Yeah. So around that then, around the, the killer questions, is there a piece around, you know, irrespective of any preamble that you might have with, within the interview, being really strict on making sure that the same questions are asked of every candidate, irrespective of whether or not they play rugby or have played yeah. rugby? I mean, I think it's consistency, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the amount of people I've interviewed in my in, in my recruitment career ru- must run into thousands now. But I still sit down and write five or six key questions that I think are really pertinent to that particular role, and make sure that all candidates get to get asked those questions. Yeah. There'll be other things you ask and other connected tissue, but I base my judgment on all of those candidates based on the same criteria. That's mm-hmm. the only way you can really judge people. How does that you know benchmarking for want of a better term? But I would suspect that most people they interviewed ten people and they were and they were videoed at the end of it they've asked different questions of different people some they've included some they've missed off and whatever and I think unconscious biases is that those people who feel a little bit unnerved by the person in the room get far more of an interrogation than those people they feel more comfortable and then immediately there's your bias absolutely absolutely there's been a lot of discussion about the role of AI, which you mentioned earlier, in improving diversity and inclusion in recruitment. I'm really passionate about this topic, as I'm sure you can imagine. But are there any tools or platforms that you've seen that can actually help with this? And what is your view overall on the, the role of AI in recruitment? I just I cannot see how it can promote diversity. I just can't. I mean, unless I'm missing something here, because all of the AI platforms I've seen have talked about speed of candidates into a process and the ability to assess tens of hundreds of people in rapid time Mm. well that's profiling let's call it what it really is there was a I'll give you an example. AI's moved on. Again, I'm a, I'm a Luddite, so we'll go back to this. But many, many, many years ago, we worked with a big, um, very big organisation that had a computer program that would read CVs before they went to the talent manager. So as a, as a lowly recruiter, I was firing CVs at this organisation and they would put them through this uh, piece of kit. I, I actually remember the piece of software, but I'm not going to mention it because for fear of legal recriminations later. But <laughs> nevertheless... They all went through this process. So really good candidates who we thought we were good. We'd interviewed them. We'd, we knew they were pre-selected, put them through this process. We couldn't understand why A was selected over B and whatever. And I remember going down to see this client and asked them the question. And basically, I was being told off by the HR director. I was on the PSL list and our response rates, CVs to interview ratios were the lowest of everybody else. And I wanted mm. to understand why. And it turned out that the system had no nuance. It had no ability to read. it. So if it had the word management accountant on the job spec it looked for management accountant on the cv no nuance to that so if you put this person has great experience in doing management accounts couldn't see it let it go yeah so that's the extreme i'm sure it's moved on from there but the reality is is that a screening system that takes out this this interface i can't see as an improvement 
And, mm -hmm. and, and in, in a nuanced world where we talk about diversity and inclusion, how, tell me how a piece of tech can, I mean, they'll say, oh, it's learning, whatever. I'm, I'm really sceptical, really yeah. sceptical. But I, I don't, but I think at the senior level I work in an executive search, I'm hoping there'll still be the need for people like me who can be able to disseminate between those who can and those who can't from a simple process of interview screening and conversation as opposed to relying on a piece of software that's going to do the heavy yards. I think from what we've, we're seeing of AI, I don't think there's any getting away from it. And I think people are looking at mm. how they can use it more and more. Um, my big thing is making sure that I get involved where I can in what's being input into those AI systems, because yeah. we're not going to get the diverse outputs we need if the inputs themselves aren't diverse. And I think the challenge we've had today is you have the same people inputting into those systems. I personally don't see AI removing the need for a person to do that interaction with the individual, but I do see it helping potentially with the attraction and some of the screening, but again, with the right inputs going into that and testing that. So that is something that I'm going to be looking at personally over the next few months to really understand actually what could this look like compared to what it currently looks like. So I know I know the founder of the business is talking to a number of AI businesses at the moment because he's a he's a fierce intellect and wants to find out just what that impact might be. But you mm. you in your commentary, which for the record I totally agree with, systems are only as ever as good as the input. Twas ever thus, right? Yeah. So if you you know my concern is is that they have a kind of Today, we need more black people. So that's the filter we're going to put in. Tomorrow, we need more people from, you know, we need more females. That's the filter we're going to put in. And and, and things don't get pushed through the same yeah. lens. And, that, and, you know, that's that's biased. That's, that's just not going to work. And I think people will probably start. I'm, I'm sceptical. I don't know enough about it. So I'm going to hold fire. I, I'm exactly the same. I think, you know, my biggest thing is I'm sceptical, but I'm also a realist. And I know that people are going to want to start using it more and more. So it's like, okay. That's fine. But how do you use it in an inclusive way? And how do we make sure that we don't forget that actually the power is in our people? So using people as part of that process is still really, really important. Plus, yep. I've still got this undercover fear that one day the computers are going to wake up and see that that we as humans are redundant and then just wipe us all out. <laughs> you mean like Terminator? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's what I say. Every time I hear AI, I always can hear I'll be back in the back. <laughs> A lot of organizations practice the Noah's Ark approach to diversity, which is, you know, let's get two of everything in. How can organizations go beyond just recruiting diversely? So, for example, in creating inclusivity and progression for everyone. I'm really, really big on this. Like one of the things that has always been a bugbear of mine is organizations saying that they're diverse because they have loads of diversity in their organizations however everyone you know the majority of the diversity you see that at the entry level or in the more junior roles yeah really big on how do we convert this into inclusivity and progression in organizations what are your thoughts david oh this good this is a big one really I, I i've been known to rant at dinner parties about this one so anybody that sat in one of the tables and heard me rant i apologize for what i'm about so <laughs> statistics lies lies and down statistics isn't that, isn't that the expression i think the moment you start to talk about quotas and numbers as organizations do especially some of the larger FTSE organizations around we have n percent white n percent female but you notice they never ever talk about the levels that those yeah. statistics are grown from and there's a reason yeah is we know we absolutely know that there's a log jam in organizations there's a log jam in female progression organizations there's certainly a log jam in terms of 
you know, graduates joining a business and going all the way through the ranks. Some of that is some of that is about social mobility. Some of that is about individuals choosing to move to progress their career and everything else. There's a certain amount of fluidity. Some of that is we know that you know when when female executives typically leave the businesses to have their family or whatever. Some choose to come back, some don't, and that's a, there's a reason why there's a gap in it. But we know there's all those statistics that prove it. But fundamentally, an organisation that has its values based on thinking they can improve things by upping the quotas without really improving the environment is always it's a flaw tactic right we know mm. that we see it's short-termism there was a well-known organization a short while ago that said oh we don't have a problem we have 54 percent ethnically diverse and actually what they meant was all the chambermaids i'm giving it away now all the chambermaids and chefs and everybody else in their massive hotel chain were, of course were all ethnic yeah the, right. the senior management team was almost zero but mm. the stats don't lie so i think it's a it's a question of about accountability isn't it? it's about you know i've hugely support ESG but like every other charter that's ever gone Parker report everything else unless you attach some teeth to it, mm-hmm. it typically people will always find ways of getting around it and I think some of the some of the reasons we've seen about getting around it is they they promote statistics that don't really tell the full story that's that's part one part two is there's winners and losers in this the winners are the organization that come up with authentic approaches and winners are the ones that are honest and say yep we've got a long way to go but these are the processes that we want and these are the metrics we're trying to do and this is what how we want to promote people this is how we want to progress our organization the winners are they will continue to attract those people and this will be less of a problem the losers will, will lose on the basis they can't attract people it's yeah. that simple I'm just I'm hugely hugely of a process where I just dislike dislike tokenism and for me the Noah's Ark is exactly that yeah we get rid of all of our problems by having too many really exactly (laughs) one of the things that you know we see a lot onboarding is mission critical in all these things how many people can say yeah we you know we don't have a problem with recruitment actually their biggest problem is retention it's about sponsorship isn't it it's about knowing that you know okay well you've hired me to do this job great I'm understanding you're on a bit of a journey. Great. What does the support network look like? Great. What does that my mentor look like? Great. Okay, fine. All these component pieces are in there. I'm probably going to stay. Mm-hmm. The, the tissue rejection numbers, of which I don't have the stats, but my general sense is there's quite a lot of dropout where actually they realise they're a lone voice. Yeah. Who, who'd want to do that? Who'd exactly. want to do that? And it's interesting as well. You've got me thinking, as you always do, is like actually throughout my career, the the only or main reason I've left businesses is because I haven't, felt like there is an opportunity for me anywhere else in the organization and I think it'd be interesting you know if we were to poll people from diverse backgrounds why you know why did you leave or why did you feel you needed to Mm. leave that organization and you're so right about you know sometimes there is that social mobility piece etc but you know we're looking at inclusivity and we're looking at how we change the way organizations look throughout the business starting to ask those really hard questions is you know why aren't people staying with you and what can you do to fix that it's quite unusual for a recruiter to ask that question actually yeah what does your what does your attention strategies look like i've I've, some of the relationships i've got with my clients for which i'm always eternally grateful is the fact we have a relationship which doesn't mean that I'm just there as a supplier I'm there as a consultant I'm there as to try and help them I'm there to try and you know understand the difficulties what it feels like for them as an organization it's not just about putting people in you know it's the whole leaky bucket syndrome isn't it you can pour yeah. as much water in you like if you've got a hole in your bucket you're going to lose all the water and it's a, exactly. it's, you know, it's a fairly simple principle absolutely I actually and this is going to be quite a contentious comment but I actually quite like the Noah's Ark approach as a starting point because I do feel like 
sometimes organizations are just like we just want to start we just want to start being diverse yep. in some way how do we do that and I do think the Noah's Ark approach gives people a starting point but I think the biggest challenge is if you have no strategy beyond that how do you then get away from that tokenism piece and I remember a few years back talking to a white male colleague about kind of you know diversity and and how I've gotten into organizations and how I celebrate organizations that actively try to attract people from my background. And his comment was, yeah, it just feels really tokenistic though. Like it, you know, why should you just be recruited because you're a black woman? And it, and at the time I was like, oh, well, firstly, <laughs> I'm not just recruited because I'm a black woman. I'm actually pretty good at what I do, but I do think it's important to appreciate the additional characteristics that I have as in the protected characteristics, because, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have the opportunities that some people that don't look like me have. Um, So I do think, you know, for me personally, from my experience, there has been some benefit, obviously, in in approaches like the Noah's Ark one. But it did make me chuckle when I (laughs) read what it was. I was like, oh, my gosh, I see that so often. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I guess I'm slightly unnerved by the actual, the optics of the Noah's Ark, yeah. kind of, you know, here's your new black friend. Yeah. We'll put you together. You'll be fine. Exactly. Like, mm, slightly my challenge on that. I think yeah. it's, you know, but you, you make a good point there. One has to start somewhere, right? An organisation has to start. It comes back to the point of minute. It's about authenticity. Be open, be transparent, be authentic about what you're trying to do. Accept the fact you have flaws because it, it isn't perfect, but it, just even talking about it, having a conversation makes people feel a whole lot comfortable. It's not something they're trying to pretend is not there. Yeah. You know, you, it is what it is, right? You know, we we're an organization by by its very nature that you know it's founded by three male founders. They're, the three male founders are still in the business. The predominance of the board is white men. Mm. Okay. Are we an inclusive business? Yes, we are. Do we talk about it? Yes, we are. But we can't hide away from the fact that actually, if you look at one particular lens of our business, it looks horribly skewed, but we don't shy away from it. We're on a journey. This is a process about what we are. We absolutely want to encourage more people to come through the organization. Now we're starting, you know, there is a Operation North Star that sits within our business, which is absolutely about nurturing talent and mentoring it through the business to exactly tackle this problem. It's not it's not off the shelf. If we don't hire a couple of senior female, let's stick them onto our board, done. Yeah. There's the Noah's Ark bit. We haven't done that. We're talking about let's try and find a way, which we're on our way of doing that with some incredibly you know, powerful people in the organisation are driving this, not by the management team, but being driven by the group mm. to encourage talent to come all the way up through the organisation. And, and the metrics on our business and, the, and the, the lens of our business in the next three to four years look very different to what it is right now. Yeah, that for me feels really good. That's progress, right? Absolutely. And that speaks to the authenticity piece as well. I remember a few years back challenging an organisation that I worked in, challenging the fact that progression was only happening amongst my white colleagues and that, you know, people from diverse backgrounds weren't getting the same opportunities and hitting just a brick wall every single time. There was defensiveness, there was anger at the challenge, etc. So hearing an organisation like yours is aware of kind of what you're trying to create and working towards creating that, I think, is really powerful. I think it's also really powerful for, for organisations listening or leaders of organisations that are listening to this thinking, you know, on the face of it, we probably don't look very diverse in our senior leadership team. And, you know, but what are we Mm. doing about that? And how are we telling people about what we're doing? I think it's really, really big. And it does speak to that authenticity. We're not asking you to have the answer today. We're just asking you to to commit to having the answer in time. 
So thank you so much for sharing that, David. Are there any key metrics or indicators that organisations should track to measure the effectiveness of their diversity and inclusion efforts in recruitment? Yeah, so we, just as an example, so if you engage in a search process with us here, we will report on all the metrics all the way through our search process. So very early on in the process, we're telling you the the, the amount of female applicants we're talking to the amount of Black, Asian, we're reporting on ethnic diversity as much as we can. Yeah. Okay. Because until we start getting individuals to start filling filling in some, some form of certification, some of this is a little bit guesswork. Okay. Mm. But we're front and centre. So we've got some fairly early warning kind of traffic lights in that process. That's one. So I think you've got to be aware of your metrics. You've got to be aware of the messaging. We talk a lot to organisations about widening the pool in some of this work because actually... Now, one of the challenges I had in the sector that I work in, so our business, you know, for those people who don't know, we predominantly work in private equity, healthcare, all aspects of privately owned healthcare, and also life sciences. And typically, there was a kind of certain bias within the sector that only people that were working in healthcare could understand healthcare. Well, mm. that's clearly not the case. I'm going to throw a stat at you now that, you know, I think it was over 60% of our hires last year came from out of sector. So we're, we've already won the battle around diversity of thought. Yeah. Sometimes winning that battle means that the pools get broader. And guess what happens? The wider the pool, there's actually more of a pull in there in terms of female and actually ethnic applications. And guess what? You start to cure two or three things with one simple shift of the dice. Yeah. So even talking to organizations around the sectors they go hiring from can have a dramatic effect. So I think that indicators are also in that statistical reporting that we do we start to tell the client when certain groups of people are dropping out the process and try and understand why they might be dropping out the process so we work very hard in terms of the original packs we produce are without bias we work very hard that if there's a message strong message we make sure those attraction packs can be as strong as they possibly can but if we're losing a lot of female applicants at a certain stage whereas let's examine why that might be i think mm. you know stats actually if they use correctly can be a very powerful tool if you don't do it you've got no method of tracking no method of coming back and maybe running the process slightly differently so i'm not sure if that's the indicators that you were looking for but that's the kind of clearest method i've got in terms of the health of a particular recruitment process are there any success stories or do you have a case study of an organization that has significantly improved its diversity and inclusion in recruitment and any positive outcomes they've experienced as a result of that yeah, so I, I did a piece of work a short while ago, and this goes back to the relocation conversation I had earlier on. We uh, had a piece of work going for a Northern European business that was originally owned by a country which really wouldn't be well known for its its views on um, diversity and inclusion, certainly not around sexuality. That's, that's a given. But we were asked to do a very significant corporate finance role. The level of black representation in corporate finance, I can tell you, is pretty low. Mm. But actually, when we started to look at the wider sectors of where they wanted to go, and we specifically targeted people that were ready to step up into that role rather than those people that are already doing that role, when we challenged the client around could they support people that would need a bit of support but ultimately then be great assets to them moving forward, mm. we were able to provide people sort of above and below the line. And we Amazing. hired an incredibly talented individual with Black African heritage experience who settled into the organisation and I've just I was told only a short while ago was singularly the best hire they've made in the last 18 months 
and is already climbing the ranks rapidly. And this is a very talented individual who shamed me. I think he spoke five or different foreign languages or whatever, but shamed me in the interview process. But tremendously lovely guy. He, if he gets to re- hear this, he'll know exactly what I'm referring to. But I think that as a case study was an organisation that generally thought, A, it wasn't possible, but we started talking to them about the art the possible. We spent a lot of time educating them around what that might look and feel. A lot of time educating the candidate that actually, you know, to your point, he wasn't going to see an awful lot of similar faces with similar backgrounds in the organisation, but he was comfortable and he was prepared. He knew he had the level of sponsorship and he knew that actually it was the right, fundamentally, it was the right job and it gave him the right career path. And yeah. all the other interviews were all, were all there, all the other hygiene factors. But yeah, singularly, that was a great piece of recruitment work. I was really thrilled to be on it and we, we've been good friends ever since. That is fantastic news. And I think, you know, I don't know if how he'd be to sharing his story but I think hearing stories like that is so powerful in terms of the learnings that people or organizations can get from that hire but similarly you know I'm really big on representation matters so showing people how that happened and the fact that it is happening just to really show that traction in the space I think is amazing what advice would you give to small and medium-sized businesses looking to enhance their DNI efforts in recruitment especially when they may have limited resources authenticity earlier on is, is know why you're doing it first mm-hmm. if you're doing it just because it needs to look good yeah Totally the wrong reason, you know, understand what the features and benefits are. I mean, I, you know, I said earlier on at the top of this, the features and benefits are way better workforce, introduce more talent, more inclusivity, more adherence, greater, happier place to be. And fundamentally, isn't it just the right thing to do? That's the other yeah. bit. Forget about everything else. It's just the right thing to do. Just hire great people. End of. Hire great people, look after them. That's it. Game over. Right. It, it can be that simple. I think, it, you know, if you don't have, it's not about money. This isn't about money. This is about training, education, purpose, values, all those kind of things. Put that front and center, you know, go and ask people what it's like in the organization to work there. Understand what your business stands for. Understand what the core values are right throughout the organization. And then go to the market in the most honest and transparent way you can. That doesn't cost anything. No. That's just, that's no cost. The other thing is use a really good recruitment business that knows what it's talking around in that process and acts as a very good partner. And I'm bound to say that I'm a recruiter. (laughs) I'm not the only one. I'm not saying you should definitely use my business, but you should use my business. That's exactly exactly what you should do. (laughs) But I think, I think, you know, a lot of the conversations we have are these, this, this isn't rocket science. This isn't high cost. This isn't, you know, we're reporting in, you know, we're putting in mentor sheets and everything else. And everybody goes, oh my God, it's a lot of cost. A lot of this is straightforward, commonsensical. How do we nurture talent? What do you see in the future of diversity and inclusion in recruitment? Are there any emerging trends or technologies that we should be aware of? <clears throat> I've already said that I'm a technological lover, so I'm not going to talk about <laughs> technology. I, I mean, I, I I speak a lot about on mental health, and I said once, and this may apply here, there's the moment, there's a sort of double-edged sword. The moment you stop talking about it, hopefully the reason why you're not, you're not talking about it is just so ingrained in what you do, you don't need to reference it rather than not talking about it because you've forgotten about it. There's there's a difference. The moment this becomes automatic and you and I, I mean, we won't be out of a job. There's always other people that, you know, will need something else. But the moment this just becomes an automatic, this is what we do. Of course, this is how we do this. This is natural. Then, you know, that's kind of where we need to have to be. 
Mm. I think it's I think it starts with education. It continues with education, and it's also about a refreshing. I mean, I, I you know I've sat in some amazing training courses. I worked for an organisation for four years that are you know that taught me so much in this space. So you know I'm grateful to the learnings I had. But some a lot of what I heard and put into practice were fairly basic stuff. Mm. In all honesty, so as for the future, it's never going to go away. It's an emerging work, workforce. But I, I when I talk to my children now, my daughter's already at work. My my son's just in his last year of university when I talk to them about this they look at you know God, dad why are you talking about that you know we don't they see the world so differently than we yeah. used to so some of this is a generational thing. some of these things will just get picked up and and I learn from them they talk to me about some of the things that their university is doing or their workforce is doing and everything else and actually think well that's quite smart so mm-hmm. yeah it's a bit of osmosis isn't it as you pick a little bit from every organization as you go before you know where you are you've got a selection of things that work for you but I think it's about picking things that work for you as an organization that are true to you and then just do it do it better definitely completely agree thank you David so to wrap things up what would you say or are there any key takeaways or actionable steps that you'd like our listeners to go away with about breaking barriers and navigating diversity and inclusion in recruitment yeah you for me you break barriers by understanding what the challenges are talk more ask questions being be inquisitive get people in challenge yourself and all of a sudden this isn't a barrier yeah. This is just, as I said to you before, it's the right thing to do. Navigating diversity. I mean, listen, as a, as a white male that's gone through his life seemingly, you know, with a few a few bumps along the way, you know, have I ever really, you know, come at the wrong end of sort of, you know, diversity, the negative sides of or discrimination? Well, of course I haven't. But understanding other people's journeys, being comfortable with phraseology, being comfortable to have conversations, being comfortable to be able to ask questions of people and better my understanding means I'm more... I'm much more comfortable talking about the subject than I ever would have been. I'd have backed away from it going, oh, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to ask. I think people just take, I think what I've seen work really well in my organisation here at Compass is that people are prepared to speak out. People are, are you know, will take responsibility going, well, I, I'm going to take that on. Mm. I think diversity has to be something that the business takes on, not the management team. That's that's the other thing. It needs support. It's a bit like it's a bit like the mental health journey I talk about. You need the support from the top in terms of funding and diversity and the clarity of language and the fact that it makes it open and everything. But for then back away because mm. actually you get in the way of it it's, yeah. it's done for the best reason but you actually want the organization to sort of take that on and just make it part of their dna yeah definitely i'd agree you know one of the things that i always say that like, i feel you know one of my goals is to get people comfortable with being uncomfortable like i feel yeah. like as human beings we i don't know we just like to be comfortable like some stuff is uncomfortable. Let's get comfortable with that. Like it's absolutely fine. And I always, they always say, feel the fear and do it anyway. And I feel like that really yeah. does apply with diversity and with with leading that authentic change in organisations. Is it will be scary as hell. And if it's not scary, it means you're not thinking big enough. And I think that my biggest kind of shout out or or just call to action would be get really comfortable with being uncomfortable because that in itself means that you are doing something different you're doing something new and creating safe spaces for for people to be uncomfortable in I think is really important as well yeah yeah. I think 
I think curiosity is a great asset to have, isn't it? That kind of, I don't understand, so I'm going to go and find out more. I mean, I, I, yes. I'm, I'm going to lay myself open here. I mean, I'm, with all the atrocities going on in the Middle East at the moment, I've made a point of going out and really understanding what's caused mm. all this. Not what's caused it now, but where's, where's history? I'm so um, naive to this. You yeah. know, it's like, oh, there's something going on in that part of the world. But actually trying to understand what are the component parts in that is is that level of curiosity is good. I love that. I'm going to I'm going to pinch that, but, you know, be comfortable being uncomfortable. I think it's good. I mean, I think but I think if more people ask questions, more people get a better understanding. The base level moves and all of a sudden some of these things just go along with it, isn't it? Absolutely. David, I have enjoyed this conversation. I'm really passionate about diversity and recruitment. I know. This conversation has been so productive and I know I've learned a lot from it and I'm confident our listeners will have learned a lot from it as well. We'll also have some takeaways and potentially may get in touch with you for some some work, some tips um, just to connect, period. But thank you so much for your time today, David. It has been a blast. Yeah, no, it's great to see you again, Grace. And listen, massive respect to what you're doing. I wish you all the best as ever. Thank you, David. You too. This podcast is brought to you by Acquaintance Consulting. We'd love it if you could take a minute at the end of this podcast to follow, subscribe, whichever is easier or available for you on the platform that you're listening to us on. We're really keen to grow this channel and really impact equality, diversity and inclusion across the world. And with your support, we can do just that. 